0: A break from our usual transmission. So we've had brought to our attention a story breaking on Brucella canis. We are going to investigate some of the background behind this breaking story because it's significant to the veterinary industry. Let's get Louise Buckley, Brucella canis XRVN, in to discuss what this is all about. Pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Where did we start and how
1: did we start this? So it's very difficult to actually summarise it in in one, one small soundbite. Building up behind the scenes has been obviously my interest in Brucella Canis and a growing appreciation of the impact that I guess practice policies and standard operating procedures have been having at the front line in terms of their, their impact on owners and of, of overseas dogs and obviously the dogs as well. And um, so that was sort of sitting there as a backdrop, and it was growing in importance in terms of my interest, and I was starting to, to raise awareness both initially privately, then more publicly. And as a consequence of that, a member of the public wrote to me, and this is this was this is what made me step off the register. A member of the public wrote to me a very long email in quite a mess. They had they had five overseas dogs plus a cat. Just before Christmas, they'd been asked by the practice to test all of the all of their dogs for Brucella canners. One dog could come back positive. And I'm giving the story more in a, in a nutshell. There's a lot more detail to it than that. But one dog could come back positive. As a consequence of that, the practice wanted the dog euthanized and they decided that they would not offer any veterinary care at all to all five dogs and the cat while this other dog was still living. Um, And the information that the client received was that they would give, where it was necessary, they would give veterinary care to any of the animals. But basically, they want the animal sat in the car and the veterinary professional would be two meters away from this animal. For five months, that's been the situation for these six animals. Initially, they didn't want to repeat the test and told the client, what was the point? We knew the animal was positive. They then changed their mind and agreed to test. And that was carried out again in March. And this dog on the second test tested negative. As a consequence of this, they were hoping this would all go back now to normal, but the practice are still not offering veterinary care. At the point at which I last communicated with this client, which was about two weeks ago, the vet practice was still not offering veterinary care to any of the animals. The dog that had originally tested positive, looking at the communications that they did have, was still being treated as positive on the grounds that once positive, always positive. As part of this email, the client also sent the blood test results to me for their animals. And when I looked, at them, I've got access to some privileged set of data that isn't published broadly in the public eye, but that allowed me to see um, when they validated the ELISA test, which is one of the two APHA tests, they've got a a group of dogs that are the the healthy control dogs, basically, that, that, that the results are being compared to. And I could see from that population that this particular dog in its original blood test that was positive sat still within the normal range for the group of dogs that were not infected with Brucella canis.
0: What you describe as a false positive then in that respect.
1: Well, what the APHA has done for the purpose of, of sort of validating the test, I assume um, from the information I've got, which is a, is a figure, is that they've cut off. The last section of, of dogs, In all, it, it, I mean, it's, it's classically done. This is not the APHA being shonky in any way. This is quite normal in, when doing diagnostic tests. You're always trading off specificity with sensitivity. The more sensitive you want a test to be, the less specific it will be. And what they've done is they've obviously drawn the line for where they're going to consider a dog to be positive sort of versus negative but that line cuts off probably the the top um, and I'm I'm guesstimating here maybe the top five percent or something like that and that's what they've that's what they've done and this dog sits there it was sitting at 100 the, the dog's value was sitting at 157 they're looking at their their data and I've only got a graphical representation of this it goes up to about 160 um, for that normal group. And I knew sitting behind the scenes of a medical professional who'd had a very similar result. And because they were a medical professional, they didn't just accept what the vet said. They got on the phone to the APHA and they discussed their result directly with the Brucella person. He told them, oh, don't worry too much. Your dog's result actually sits within the normal range um, for the, these healthy dogs. Here, have a graph that shows you, so you can see yourself exactly where you sit, we just suggest you test again in, in maybe in a couple of months' time or something, and you'll probably find it sits within the normal range, and then we'll downgrade you from a probable infection to a may maybe infection, and we just suggest that for the rest of the dog's life you just do some ongoing testing just in case. So I knew that that conversation had taken place. I'm now looking at a blood set of blood test results, saying that this dog had a, a result that was just. Two points away from the other dog that um, they would discussed and the dog now had a second test that had been negative so it aligned exactly with what the APHA had told this other person and the client is also telling me that this dog that they got it as a puppy that it had come from Greece had been found as a tiny puppy it had lived in a kennel with its sibling no exposure to other dogs and the other dog had tested negative they know because they adopted the other dog both both lived together None of them had ever shown any signs of any clinical infection or problems whatsoever. And it been living in the household for two years, yet no other animal or human appeared to be infected with Brucella canis. So all the signals were suggesting this dog was negative. I contacted the RCVS and I explained the situation to them. And I said, where do I stand if I tell the client that I've got access to this data and that this is the reference range that the APHA have got? Your dog's result fits within that. Why don't you go back and discuss this with the vet and get them to contact APHA and then see where it sits in relation to your clinical scenario? And I was told by the RCVS that if I did that, I'd be in violation of my professional code of conduct because I would be acting as a vet, diagnosing on, on and interpreting clinical information related to an individual animal. And that was not the role of a vet nurse, that was the role of a vet. And I said to the RCVS, um, but At the moment, would I not have some sort of get out under whistleblowing? Because obviously there's six animals here being denied veterinary care. I was told no, because I wasn't employed by the vet practice and that whistleblowing only applied to employees. So I then said, well, what about the fact that my professional code of conduct requires me to put animal welfare at the forefront of my endeavor? And there are six animals that currently do not have access to vet care. They now haven't for about five months. Quite frankly, they're stigmatized. Their chances of being taken on by another vet practice now are are pretty low all the time. This other dogs alive because there's a positive dog living in the household, according to the, the paper. And the RCVS told me that, no, that still wouldn't apply. And the reason for that was because the only requirement on the veterinary professional in that situation was to provide emergency care and pain relief. And I, I said, well, I've worked in emergency clinics before. I know that we can just offer euthanasia as the emergency treatment. So basically, they could rock up with a problem. And the vet just says, well, I've already told you I'm not prepared to offer treatment, but we will put your animal to sleep. And that's six, six animals here that are caught in that situation, potentially. RCBS said that, that that was a possibility and that, that, that was there wasn't actually anything to stop the VET from doing that, but they would have to look they could they would have to look on a case by case basis and they would look to see if other aspects of the professional code of conduct have been violated, but that we had to trust our vets to do the right thing and not be too prescriptive about it. Now that just didn't sit well with me. And I came off the phone to them and I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought I would want to know that information as a client. And I think I have a duty to give that information to the client. So I hit delete on my registration as a veterinary nurse and decided that I I would I would come off the register so I was no longer in violation of anything and I was going to tell the client and that's what I did and it was probably just as well that I did come off the register because I since that point I have probably broken what would have been my professional code of conduct on a daily basis, including a case very recently where, if I hadn't done so, the dog would have been dead by now. It would have it would have been euthanized on Monday morning.
0: Wow, wow! I um, I, I really respect you for standing standing by your mm-hmm. your duty there and and putting the animals first. Can we? You've you've uncovered a whole load of of stuff there, <laughs> Louise, mm-hmm. in a very concise manner. Um, not all of Veterinary Ramblings listeners are vets or vet nurses. And I wonder if I could, please forgive me, can we wind this right the way back to brucellosis? What is it? What is the significance of this?
1: Okay basically it's a bacteria that dogs can get infected with and that is inf- infectious but also zoonotic so it, that means it's infectious and it can infect humans and that's where the, the I think the primary concern has has come about from. Predominantly it's a sexually transmitted disease so the, the, the most likely way of it transmitting is between dogs as a consequence of a sort of a sexual act or sexual related sort of behaviours. You find high levels of it in reproductive tissues in in dogs. So you'll you'll get it in things like semen, you'll get it in things like the uterine tract, um, menstrual fluids, etc. One of the the key clinical signs of relevance is that it affects reproductive related activities, from things like fertility through to the the bitch will bought puppies or puppies will be born. Some will go, some will go full term, and then shortly after being born will die. A few will 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 go through to to adulthood um, and can be adopted. Can be adopted out, so there's, there's that that possibility. You can get some that are not specifically related to reproduction. So, um, for example, you can get some spinal-related issues, and you can get and um, sort of generalized enlarged lymph nodes. You can get an enlarged spleen. You can get uh, sort of sort of inflammation of the of the testicles. Um, so there are other other clinical signs that you can have. So it, it wouldn't be fair to say that it's, it's just entire dogs indulging in reproduction, but predominantly it's a sexually transmitted disease. We're talking about Brucella canis. There are other species of Brucella, sort of related species, that are considered to be more pathogenic. So that means that they're more likely to, to, to be infectious and more likely to inc- cause disease in people that get it. But we're talking here about Brucella canis. In terms of humans, most people that get infected with hum- with Brucella canis will either not show clinical signs, or they or or they may show signs that are mild, transient, and so not not linked to something nasty and will, will sort of clear up of their own accord. So you're talking about often sort of something like a, a mild fever, cold or flu-like symptoms, etc. In a very small number of people, you can get a much more severe signs than that. To the best of my knowledge, nobody has ever been reported in the scientific literature as having died from Ruzella Canis. And the government hares Report, so and that was sort of Public Health England, that's now the UK Health Security Agency, but they produced a report, the hares Report, in 2021. And they at that point reported that they couldn't find any reports in the scientific literature worldwide to say anybody had died from this. I repeated that search about a month ago, and I also didn't find anything, and that was using sort. PubMed, which is the, the main human healthcare database that's used worldwide. So it's not endemic in the UK? That's the billion dollar question in many ways. We've always said, or, or, or the common thinking is it's not endemic in the UK. But when we're thinking about endemic, endemic doesn't mean that there's lots of it. So like in, like you've got 100% of dogs have got it or, or 50% of dogs have got it or 10% of dogs have got it. It just means that it, 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 it's reliably present within the UK. And that could be either at a very low level or moderate level, high level, et cetera. But it's it's worth saying that we've, we have, we say that we have no evidence that it was endemic in the UK, but we weren't looking for it. It wasn't a disease that was on the radar of UK veterinary professionals, so they wouldn't necessarily have been looking for it. We recognise it may have been present at a very low level. We don't routinely test UK dogs for it. We recognize that in a lot of cases it would be subclinical in a dog. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to say why we wouldn't necessarily have known if it was present at a low level in the UK. And the HAIRS report actually flags that as one of the, one of the, the, the unknowns about it, because there's a lot of unknowns about it. But it's reasonable to still assume that because we are obviously in Ireland, that it's got to have come in from somewhere at some point. And overseas dogs, simply by virtue of the fact that there are so many coming in, would be a reasonable reservoir for, for introduction. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't already in the UK to some degree or another. And it's worth noting that there have been some cases among UK originating dogs that have had no contact with overseas dogs at all that um, have um, tested positive for brucellosis. And those have only been detected because the dogs were showing clinical signs. The standard operating procedure basically requires no veterinary treatment to be offered to an overseas dog from a list of countries until they have been tested for Brucella canis. Now, under non-emergency um, conditions, that sample blood sample would be taken and sent off to the government laboratories for the standard serum agglutination test plus the ELISA more controversially under emergency conditions they use an in-house snap test and an in-house snap test is a relatively blunt screening tool that has lower sensitivity so for readers that are not veterinary that means that they're less likely to detect a dog that has the disease Um, but also for for my, my area of concern they're also less specific so or or, um, have a lower specificity that would mean that now we're focusing on healthy dogs that don't have the disease and the lower the specificity the greater the risk that you identify a dog that doesn't have the disease but you claim that it has got the disease and in some of these popular in-house tests something like one in ten dogs that overseas dogs that don't have the disease and but are tested with an in-house test would come up as having a as as as, as a positive result, it's not a legal requirement to euthanize these dogs. This is this is a, a veterinary policy-driven thing. In terms of the government, the government have said that there's there's no treatment for Brucella canis that, that can cure it. So if you want to remove risk completely, then the only way to remove risk completely is to euthanize the dog. But they also recognise that that may not be palatable, and in those situations, they're recommending that if the dog is not neutered, that it should be neutered, and that's the key way really to reduce the risk of transmission and accepted uh, you know, sort of across the world as a, as a way of, re- of reducing the risk of brucella spreading but this particular veterinary practice has made or, or veterinary chain has made the decision that if a dog tests positive that's it that has two key key issues one is that obviously they're a large chain they own a lot of veterinary practices in some areas there's not an awful lot of options to go elsewhere so for example i now drive Forty minutes to, a veterinary, to, to, to access veterinary care for my own dogs. The second thing is that they also own out of hours emergency clinics that do the work for not only for their own practice but also for other veterinary practices. Which means that because out of hours is the majority of the time in the week, that means that for um, a Brucella canis positive dog, even if they've got a day practice that would provide care. For the most hours in a week, they can't access veterinary care. You know, in the event of there being an emergency. But thirdly, it's our people will argue that well, the client can go elsewhere. If you go to your vet's with an emergency, let's say you've got a, a sort of gastric torsion um, or a broken leg, or your dog's got a vomiting and diarrhoea bug, and it's now say I don't know eight, nine, ten percent dehydrated. Realistically, there is not an alternative to go elsewhere. That's that's um, a theoretical construct that in in reality cannot pay, pay out because the client can't just say, My dog hasn't been hit by a car, it's bleeding out. But you know what, you don't want to provide me veterinary care, so I'm gonna drive 90 miles down the road to the next emergency clinic. Um, because you cover all the out-of-hours work for all the practices in this city or town. It just doesn't work like that. Um, so in reality, that client is forced into a position of euthanizing their dog in order to protect the welfare of their dog. Because remember that the Animal Welfare Act, the the vet's home and dry because under their professional code of conduct, euthanasia is an acceptable approach to emergency treatment. The owner, of course, is not home and dry. Under the Animal Welfare Act, they have a duty to act in a way that protects their animals' welfare or prevents their animal getting into a situation in which their welfare is, is um, reduced. Um, so, realistically, their back's against the wall. They've got to accept the recommendation of euthanasia under those circumstances, or they're now themselves in violation of, of animal welfare legislation. So there's the, That's coercion, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and there's obviously a big emotional attachment there. Um, mm. We know it's always difficult to, to work on your own family. Whether that be an animal or or a human um, in an emergency situation, even whether, irrespective of your professional training. Louise, are the practices warning clients in advance that their dog will be euthanized if they test positive?
1: That's um, variable between practices. Some are, and I've been asking members of the public to send me the information sheets that veterinary practice has been supplying, so that I two two strands. I've asked I've asked members of the public to tell me what was important, what would be important to them in terms of informed consent, right. um, because I'm very interested in what a client considers informed consent. And then what I've asked them to do is to send me their client information sheet, so I can match that up to see whether they. They align metric-wise um, in terms of what the client wants for informed consent and what they get. I would say the vast majority of information sheets that I've received contain factual inaccuracies. The default setting is not to tell the client what will happen if their dog tests positive. In fact, in relation to the, to the, the corporate that we won't name, their information sheets, if you read their client information sheet, you would feel that you were being a supported client and that this was matter of fact and that you needed to do this in order to access full veterinary care to your animal not that you do this and then we'll carve off the the portion that are positive and euthanize them and only give veterinary care to the rest um it's wow. they 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 just it's like they're like lambs to the slaughter, some of these clients, because the the lack of information is there to allow them to know what's coming. And I'm dealing with one case at the moment, which is, has been pretty horrific, because the client adopted an overseas dog, booked it in to be neutered, and... The vet practice said, before we do it, we have to do this blood test just to check that your dog doesn't have this disease. And so they booked They booked in, they had the test. The, they had no idea what was coming if the dog tested positive. And the client, the vet practice then got the results, rang the client at work in the morning and said, your dog has tested positive. The only thing we can do now for your dog is euthanasia. We have a slot this afternoon. Would you like to come down this afternoon to euthanase your dog? The client was in tears and said, I, "I can't, I can't do this. I need to talk to my partner." And they said, "Okay, that's that's fine. We have an appointment tomorrow. Perhaps we can make the appointment now for tomorrow." And they said, "No, they needed to talk to the partner." The client was harassed, and that's their words, not mine. Was harassed over the course of that week, repeatedly to book their dog in to be euthanized. And when they wouldn't do it, she was told that she was a a young woman of childbearing years and didn't she realize that she was putting in jeopardy her ability to have children and when she still didn't agree to euthanasia they wrote to them to sack them as clients or or more to sack the dog as a client of the veterinary practice and they were told they had 14 days to find another veterinary practice and over that period they would only offer emergency care when the client came to me and told me this I said well you need to go back to your practice and establish what emergency care means because it could just mean that they will offer you your dog euthanasia Um, that's now obviously being dealt with as a complaint at the moment um, it's that I'm aware that that's been reviewed by solicitors and so there's a there's a chance that that will go further but this is not atypical and I think that's the important thing to really to emphasize this is coming in On an almost daily basis, people are contacting me with information that tells me that the veterinary profession is not giving clients informed consent, either at the point of the blood test, but also at the point of euthanasia. It's very common for clients to be given information that's incorrect. I'm autistic um, which means that when I get the bit between my teeth in relation to things like the truth firstly I research it massively I want to know everything I possibly can about a topic but also I'm very driven by concepts of justice and honesty and that sort of thing and nobody silences me once once I've got the bit between my teeth I will just stand up for everything and I've on about it and on about it on about it to the point i think my mum wanted to kill me at one point i think she lined up got me bruce Ellen, positive myself and then put me into the vets and we went to sleep because i drove her nuts and she she kept saying to me i i, I you know that I, I just can't see how this is possible you know this is you must be exaggerating this reason. are you sure you've got your facts right and i said i'm telling you now mum, I, I have um and she went into her own veterinary practice she was taking her cat in Went into home vet practice, struck the vet up in conversation and just said, I've got a friend who's got an overseas dog. She's been told she's got to have this test. What's all this about? And the vet turned around to her and said, oh, yes, um, it's a nasty disease. It's killed somebody in the UK and therefore we need to euthanize. All dogs that test positive, and my mum came back and reported this to me, and I said, "Mum, that's nonsense." There's been one case reported in the literature of a person in the UK with brucella. I can tell you now they're alive and kicking. I saw them on a discussion forum only last week. You know that if there had been a death in the UK, that would have been widely covered. There hasn't been. In fact, there hasn't. The the UK government couldn't find any evidence of any deaths as late as 2021, and. You know, that, but that's the kind of thing that's happening. A client messaged me um, to tell me that her two vet nurses at a vet practice had told her that the reason that practice was testing was because a vet nurse had caught Brucella canis and was now disabled as a consequence because of that she went into the practice she agreed to have the test it's my understanding that the dog needed to be sedated in order to draw blood and when the dog was sedated she was talking to the vet about this and the vet said well that's not true why I don't know why they would have said that and that information had been used to get the dog the owner to agree to blood testing and There's no way that's informed consent that, you know, an animal's now gone through a sedation and a blood test on the basis of something that wasn't even, doesn't even appear to have been true by the admission of the own veterinary practice. But it's a common story that's coming through these kind of things. As I said, it's it's happening daily at the moment, or almost daily.
0: It sounds terrible, Louise. What, What is it? Okay, so what is it that we can do? What do we. How do we educate the vets that are caught in this almost Chinese whispers mm-hmm. scenario of assuming that this is worse than TB and let's kill all the badgers? Um, mm-hmm. what, what, is it, what is it that we can do? What is it that you would like to see happen?
1: well i think that the sort of leading organisations need to start using less dramatic language instead of these are trojan trojan animals coming into the uk infecting um you know you know everyone putting everybody's um health at risk etc we Use less glamorized language. It's less strong sound bites, but it's more realistic. This is a disease that probably won't cause you any problems at all. There's no scientific literature to suggest that actually, as a veterinary professional, you're more likely to get infected, et cetera. It's used less dramatic language that's not a sort of government policy driven or other agenda driven. We need to make sure that our guidelines are evidence based. Thinking about things like that, we need from our veterinary leaders, we need evidence based guidelines that are genuinely evidence based and evidence based and independent not just copying what somebody else has said but actually looking at the evidence and drawing your own conclusions otherwise not the leading parties aren't all independently coming to the same conclusion they're all just copying each other and that's and instead of that becoming you know a body of evidence that's one piece of evidence tweaked and put out several times and that's a very, very different situation we also need the government to start being far more transparent about what they're doing, because at the moment they're not. And I mean, some of the classic things that they're doing is this, they haven't reported the methodology. They have conflated Science with value judgment. So, for example, you know they use a parallel testing approach, and that's translated across to everybody as oh, well. This is this is just science. I mean, this is the outcome of science. But actually, it's a value judgment whether you take a parallel testing approach or a serial testing approach. We need to be a lot more honest about. Uh, they need to be a lot more honest about what they're doing and why. But they also need to start publishing their data. Now, one of the issues that we have is that um, the tests that they're using the methodologies that they're using they're developing these are new new to the um the APHA now things like ELISA etc yes they've been around for a long a long time but not reliably in, particularly in the case of the ELISA not reliably in relation to brucella canis this is a methodology that's being developed specifically for brucella canis by the government laboratories, and they're going to be publishing their methodology at some point in the future. But it's an it's a new methodology. It's relatively a new methodology in the way that they they they're doing it. And yet, there's things that they are not giving out as information, like are they using Brucella canis or Brucella ovis as their antigen in the in this test and the related test? Now, I. Spoke to the Cornell University Brucella specialist um, to ask about things that would cause um, a less than 100% specific test and was told that if you use Brucella Ovis as your antigen, you will get slightly less good specificity. But despite that, I can't get from the UK government whether they're using Ovis or Canis. Um, I've been labelled as vexatious for asking the question as a Freedom of Information request. They also aren't publishing their confidence intervals around their combined testing. So for the sensitivity confidence, comp- um, you've got two tests: the ELISA and, and the serum agglutination test. And because you're doing parallel testing, you basically you calculate the probability given that you've done these two tests that the dog will test po- that dogs test positive on one or the other. Um, and this, they're, they're not publishing the confidence interval around each of those values. And that's really important because a confidence interval will give you some idea of how confident they are in the precision of that value. So if you've got a narrow confidence interval, they've got high confidence in in the precision of that value. If you've got a wide one, they haven't. And so the fact that they don't want to publish this information (laughs) makes me think that maybe it's not as narrow as you might like. I'm sitting on, they gave me another set of data through discussions with them, which if that set of data was correct, it would mean that the government reported specificity of 99 was actually 98%. And now they've said that they're not putting that data out because they've got concerns over covariance. Is there high confidence data set in relation to the the, the dogs being positive but they've got concerns over covariance um in there and i haven't unpacked that enough with them but that they think that that might affect in particular their sensitivity values and overstate how sensitive the test is and i've gone back to them and said yeah but um it has the opposite effect with specificity it means you underestimate potentially how many dogs will falsely die as a consequence of your testing But as I said, until they put all their methodology and the confidence intervals and all of these kind of things in the public eye, we just don't know. The other thing that I need want to see, and again, this is in the hands of the APHA, is I want to see the prevalence data. So there's a lot of talk around how many dogs are actually likely to be affected in these countries of origin. But we don't actually have that data to to really unpack and interpret the tests. And this becomes important because when you think about testing, there is an interaction between the prevalence of a disease in a population and the risk of of a, a test being either a true positive or a false positive. So we have something called a positive predictive value. And that is basically, given that this dog has tested positive, what is the chances that it's a false positive? What is the chances that it's a true positive? I wrote to the Dogs Trust to find out about the overseas dogs because they screen all dogs on a mission into the Dogs Trust. If they've got an overseas history, they screen them for Brucella Canis and they'd reported that 550 dogs, um, out of 550 dogs, nine tested positive. That was reported in the Vet Times. I wrote to them to confirm this. They told me that 2% of dogs that fitted this demographic tested positive. If you take away what I would call the expected number of positives, even if there was no Brucella canis in the population, that would be 1%. So a specificity of 99%, except in the PHA figures, would be 1%. That would leave you as kind of excess diagnoses of Brucella canis as about 1%. If that's the case, um, then... The only figure we currently have for overseas dogs coming into the UK with brucella canis is about one percent. You take away the the one percent you'd expect of false positives, you're left with one percent. It's a rough and ready calculation, but it's worth saying that if you had, if that was a genuine, reasonable marker of the prevalence levels of, of brucella canis amongst overseas dogs imported into the UK. The positive predictive value of the APHA tests is such that roughly one in two dogs would be a false positive. Veterinary practices in the UK are making decisions over whether healthy dogs live or die on the basis of that one test. (laughs) What do you say to that? It's It's just staggering, absolutely staggering. These are not independent tests. This is the same test twice. And it means that you would expect a huge amount of covariance. So um, regardless of whether it was a false positive or a true positive, if if you do your test, let's say you do your test on, on, on day one and it's uh, the, the dog's tested positive. Um, now, we don't know whether it's tested positive because it's infected with Brucella canis. You know, it may that may be the case or it may be because it's gotten it's being infected with another pathogen, of which there's lots, that um, it's mounted an immune response to and its antibodies are sufficiently similar to that of Brucella canis that they also bind to the antigen in the test and um, uh, in what we call cross-reactivity and so cause a positive result. And things that can cause that are things like, according to the scientific literature, this is not specific to the APHA test, but in terms of serology tests, of which the APHAs are examples, We know that things like E. coli, Salmonella, Bordetella bronchoseptica, which is, is a a key bacteria that causes kennel cough and a whole load of others, despite, uh, besides that, have all been associated with false positives in serology tests. So if we make the assumption that we test on day one, the test is positive. We don't know whether it's been caused by, by, um, brucella canis or one of the others we then test several weeks down the line and again that it tests positive now the APHA according to the APHA statement we could be more confident that this dog has got brucella canis I say no we can't um because unless you're going to tell me what the half-life is of the antibodies the other antibodies that can cause a false positive is and you can demonstrate that the half-life is such that by the time you get to the second test they would, have, they would have dropped down sufficiently in number that they wouldn't have caused a positive result. All you can actually tell me is that this dog has tested positive twice, several weeks apart. But that doesn't mean that it's, it, we can be any more confident that it's got Brucella canis. You've used the same test. And I haven't got any kind of an answer from anybody to tell me that that, that, that what I'm saying is wrong. <laughs> so... But what I would say, and I think to put this into context as to what we're doing, I mean, obviously we're playing with dogs' lives here, but we have a really clear precedent of this going badly wrong in the literature, in the media. And those that are listening that are sort of my age or older would probably remember a solicitor called Sally Clark. And round about the late 90s or early 2000s, she was convicted for the cot death of her two small children. A consultant paediatrician called Roy Meadows stood up in court and said the chance of somebody having two cot deaths in a row like this in the same household would be one in several million and on the basis of his evidence this woman was convicted of of killing of murdering her or murdering or manslaughter per two small babies and sent to prison. Now the Royal Statistical Society um, got wind of this and looked at this and went, "Holy crap! This, this is a terrible use of statistics. I mean, this is this is a this is a doc, doc, doctor, consultant doctor, and he doesn't know his stats at all. This is terrible." And you know, you cannot say that. Um, and they. It went to a retrial, and she got off on the retrial because when they did the statistics properly and took into consideration that these weren't these two deaths weren't independent. They are the same parents, the same household, the same way of putting the children to bed. All of those kind of things. These are, these are dependent units, not independent. That the statistics is very different, and based on the, the evidence base that was there, the risk of it coming of it um, being a false positive. Came down from one in several million to, depending on the source you read, one in two hundred or one in sixty-six. That evidence, in conjunction with other stuff that was going on, meant it was considered an unsafe um, conviction, and she got she was released from jail. But her whole life was destroyed, and that of her husband. And my understanding is is that um, she drank herself to death in the end from from the, the pain and stress. And you can imagine the situation. But that's what Unsound Scientific Endeavour does. And that's what making the recommendation to use the same test twice, several weeks apart, potentially does. You know, and I I spoke to Cornell University, had a long discussion, as I said, with the Brisella canis expert. And she raised a question mark. She was quite surprised that the, the, the government strategy here and the veterinary profession strategy here was to kill a dog so easily on the basis of our, of our testing strategy. And that doesn't happen in America. They use it, they use a serial testing approach where you have a, a much more sensitive test at the start that has got a greater risk of, of, sort of false positives. But then you do a second test, um, which is your confirmatory test, which is much more specific. And um, now, uh, uh, granted, that will miss some some dogs that are genuinely positive and the APHA has concerns about that because their priority is sensitivity over specificity. But but as I said, that's a value judgment. What's next for you then, Louise? Um, Well, uh, at the moment, what's next for me is making my way through a phenomenal number of emails and private Facebook messages because it's gone absolutely mental since the Veterinary Times article. I've had really encouragingly. Um, so when I launched this, I was, I think, seen among certain people as a fringe lunatic for for speaking out as a as a lone voice. And it was only sort of members of the public that were joining my Facebook group. I then became aware that that veterinary professionals were kind of lurking and um, um, informally following. But over the last week. What's been really interesting is that veterinary professionals are actively following and my page has now been recommended in a couple of different um, veterinary forums. And I'm now sitting on a number of communications from veterinary professionals, wanting wanting questions, wanting to know more about the evidence, etc., which I think is really encouraging. So my first thing is obviously to work my way through that. I'm an absolute geek, so I'm busy printing off and downloading every single bit of literature I can have. I'm now looking at the wider literature in relation to the World Health Organization and appraising their guidelines in relation to Bruce, brucellosis um, to improve, improve my sort of evidence base. And then it's to try and work with anybody that wants wants to work with me to to try to 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 change it. My ultimate goal is t- is to get the veterinary profession to 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 recognize that this is really not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things um you're you're very unlikely to get infected with it um and if you get infected with it you're very unlikely to have any any clinical signs or very or have or have very mild clinical signs you know the scientific literature does not support the response we have we're currently seeing um something that is sitting there that um a couple of veterinary professionals have shown interest in is actually taking advantage of the fact that we have both veterinary professionals and members of the public now on my page and it's continuing to grow um, and potentially getting those to work together to form learning sets. Now this is a um, an evidence-based medicine type concept where we draw together people with a shared interest um to generate clinical questions um and then to answer them and we've, we've seen that with that the recover guidelines and it's whether I can pull together um veterinary professionals and owners to think about what are the what are the questions the management questions the clinical questions etc that are important to them um and actually work together um but so you want you want this to grow
0: so how absolutely so how do people get in touch with you?
1: Um, they can get in touch with me via um, the, the Facebook page. So, so that's um, Brucella Canis, former RVN, resigned under protest. It was Brucella Canis RVN. <laughs> um, so, so look at Brucella put stuff Canis. On, I, on there. I review, I review um, the scientific literature, etc. on there. They can also use my email that's um, also published via that page, which is BrucellaCanisRVN at com.
0: I, I think you're making waves. I think you're making waves in the right way yeah. um, for, for what my opinion is worth. So uh, we're very happy to throw the support of veterinary ramblings behind. Thank you. Raising yeah. awareness and mm-hmm. hopefully bringing this to a sensible, evidence-based conclusion. Yeah. So, hopefully.
1: That's what I hope to. Fingers crossed. So. so thank so,
0: you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Well, Thank you very much indeed for your time. And, okay. uh for sharing your story with us. We'll do what we can do to uh, to spread the news. Thank you yeah, you're very very welcome.